0: We humans share our limitations. We humans have certain limitations that should inform the products that are designed around us, should inform the way things are designed. And if you can't understand how humans work, then other humans will make the same mistakes.
1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. On this episode, Debbie talks with two designers about the history of user-friendly design and the importance of designing for feedback.
0: That lesson about feedback is one that you can apply to so many different
2: swaths of our lives and so many different things, like they just need feedback that doesn't exist. I think you have people who don't know what they're gonna do with the feedback when they get it. And that's scary too.
1: Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor.
3: Sometimes the best thing about being on the road for business travel is not being on the road at all. Sometimes hiding away and unwinding in your hotel room is what you need to really get away. That's why I love to stay at AC Hotels by Marriott, The AC Guest Room provides me with everything I need and nothing I don't. It has all the purposeful design details that matter most. There are plentiful outlets in convenient locations, a spacious bench for luggage storage, and an open closet for easy access. The AC Guest Rooms are beautiful, they're uncluttered, and they're truly comfortable, letting you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy, the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac-hotels.com to learn more. For a product designer, it's hard to imagine a more perfect name than Robert Fabricant. Fabricant means maker, and Robert has had a long career making everything from medical devices to apps. And now he has collaborated with Cliff Kwong on making a book. It's called User-Friendly, How the Hidden Rules of Design Are Changing the Way We Live, Work, and Play. Cliff Kwong has an unusual resume. He's a user experience designer and a journalist. He has worked as the design editor at Wired Magazine and as director of product innovation at Fast Company. He's covered design for over a decade and was the founding editor of Fast Company's design site, CoDesign. This book is their first collaboration. Gentlemen, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thank you for having us. Thank you so much.
3: Robert, can you tell us why you're in possession of a 1970s mechanical King Kong that shoots knife blades out of its nipples?
2: So I'm pretty fascinated by the way things are put together. And uh, when I was a kid growing up in the city, I was pretty excited when a little comic book store opened up on 86th and Columbus. And I used to hang out there with my friends and kind of go through the cheap bins to try and find cool shit to read. One day they started carrying these crazy figurines from Japan and I'd never seen them before and one of me and one of my friends just got obsessed with them. And so I had a couple of these hanging around my house and in sort of a sad turn of events that friend of mine passed away quite young and I his mother gave me just one piece from his collection and it kind of got me interested again in exploring them and I started doing more research and finding all the history behind these uh, crazy figurines, and the, the cool thing as a product designer, is that the movies. And we think about these kind of accessories as ways, small ways, to promote media. But when these things were created, it was the other way around. They created the movies and a lot of the media around these things to sell the toys. So, the toys and the quality of them were just beyond good. I mean, the pieces and the way they fit together, and the weight, and the die cast material, and the range of colors and textures and mechanical elements that they started to work in these things were crazy. And Mecha Gorilla, they didn't have the license to the King Kong name. So, Mecha Gorilla ah, okay. is one of the signature products. But yes, it does shoot blades from its nipples, it has this kind of riveted, almost Game of Thrones style kind of pleats to the metalwork. Yeah, it's just incredibly fantastic and sophisticated piece of product design for a toy. So it's it's a prized possession.
3: Now, how many of these die-cast Japanese robots do you actually have? Now
2: you're getting me into trouble. (laughs) My wife keeps looking at this shelf and convincing herself that I'm buying more and more. The truth is I went on a bit of a spending spree on eBay once I got back into it. And I have... Maybe about 25 or 30 of them. I've completed, there were basically two or three series that I've completed. So I'm trying to kind of go a little more cold turkey now.
3: Oh, okay. Meanwhile, Cliff, I found a record of a Cliff Kwong from San Antonio who was involved in a comic book contest in 1993 to, quote, help create a crime-busting comic book that would deliver a strong message to San Antonio young people promoting self-esteem and the power of good choices. So, first off, was that you? Oh, my goodness. what was this comic book? Are you, like, a private investigator? How did you find (laughs) that? I I got skills. (laughs) I will
0: be honest. I don't totally remember this. I do remember entering a comic book drawing contest when I was, like, probably in high school. That would have been right around that time. And I don't remember what the context was, but I think I probably created some sort of character and submitted it. Um, Long story short being that, like, role-playing games and comic books and all that kind of stuff was really my entrance into the world of visual culture. I mean, it was the idea of, like, a world that could be immersive and highly detailed and highly rendered with stakes and all those kinds of things. Like, that was really what got me into the space of imagination and visual creativity.
3: I think that just these two little tidbits will allow my listeners to understand why this collaboration for your book is so brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Neither of you went straight into design as a career. Uh, Robert, after studying fine art and anthropology at Yale, you became associate director at the Fund for Modern Courts, where you did community organizing and policy work. And Cliff, you graduated from Columbia with a degree in philosophy and studio art, and then went to work at Bain & Company, a global management consulting firm, a real blue-chip company. Did any of those early jobs prepare you for your future design careers? I will say
0: the Bain, the experience at Bain certainly did in an unusual way. And I should explain that, uh, that weird detour I took in the following way. I still didn't know what design was when I graduated from college, didn't know what it was, didn't know what it was about. And The college that I went to that you mentioned, like, they don't really help you with that. (laughs) It's not like the benefit of SVA where you get this world of like, here's all the world of design and here's all the things that it does. You either had architecture or you had art. And I was clearly, I had entered in as an architecture major, went over to studio art because I realized the frustrations of architecture and how limited in many ways that discipline was. And I went to go work at Bain because I intended to save money to go get an MFA.
3: Why Bain? (laughs) I mean, how did that happen?
0: So my rationale at the time was they don't care what I majored in. How did they hire you?
3: Why were they interested in you? You know,
0: I I guess I had enough ability to tap dance around how you might solve a problem. But yeah, I, I entered in thinking like I would save money for an MFA. And I came back to New York at some point. I was keeping a studio. I was, like, building my portfolio. And at some point, I just realized, like, the issue I had with art was that you could only reflect issues. You couldn't necessarily propose solutions to them. And that, to me, eventually, long story, but I eventually found my way to design. And that's really what appealed to me, to propose the forward solution. And with art, that was always a struggle for me.
3: So you went from possibly wanting to be an artist to then also being both a designer and a design journalist.
0: Yeah. I fell into design journalism almost by accident. Um, Again, I was just, like, trying to find a way to make money and save money, and I went to go work at The Economist because, you know, I worked at Bain. And then, through happenstance, because of a woman that I went to college with who was leaving a job at ID Magazine, she was like, oh, I'm leaving my job, you know, you should go work it here. And I was, like, so excited about the idea of getting back into visual culture and I took that job, and that really opened my, opened my eyes. I was like, oh, wow, people do this for a living. That entrance into journalism was actually my beginning of the beginning of my, my education about what design was and what the stakes were.
3: You both currently have full-time jobs. Robert, you're a partner at Dahlberg Design, and Cliff, you are a designer at Google. Why and how did you decide to do this book together?
2: I felt like we just started having to start a conversation at a moment where some ideas that I guess if I, at least in my own career, I won't speak for Cliff, go back to early 90s when I was tinkering with them and seemed to be part of a very esoteric community were starting to become writ large in the world around us. And um, to me, it was just like this sense of an absence of like, how did we get here? And how do you tell that story? It was just, to me, so, so immediate and obvious. And I feel like we had the same little pee under our mattress or a grain of sand in our shelves. It was just like, this has to be told, and it has to be told well. And um, I didn't really, I had never been involved in a book project, so I had no idea what was involved in doing that. Um, but maybe, you know, for me, it was just like this nagging feeling that this story has to get told.
3: Cliff, you've said that Robert approached you with some very specific questions in regard to the contents of this book. Can you share any of those with us? I think,
0: you know, Robert at the time, if I recall right, he made the point like that, look, you know, something like user experience is determinative in so much of our lives. And there is so little of an account of what it means and how that happened. And Immediately, I thought, that's exactly right. There is no story of how this happened. How did it happen that user experience came to dominate so much of our waking lives? And I think eventually, Robert suggested the title User-Friendly, and that, to me, immediately made it click. I got it immediately. I thought, what if you could write a biography, almost, of that idea, uh, sort of a history and a, a narrative that gave people a sense like here was something that didn't have to be. You know, We tend to think that you know user friendliness and simplicity and all this kinds of stuff, it's like just the way the world should be. And I just had a hunch like that the world might have turned out differently, right? And the process of writing and reporting the book was a little bit like, You saw this X on a map. I went to the X and then I looked around and I couldn't find the X and I just realized the entire mountain I was standing on was the X. It was just everywhere. All these things connected in all these kinds of surprising ways and all these different stories that seemed disparate, that you may have heard little pieces and snatches of and and little snippets of in the profession. They all had this very bright connective tissue in them that I had never seen put to the written page before
3: you do create a remarkable map of the history of user experience and our relationship with technology but speaking of that x i don't know if you realize this maybe it was intentional i can't imagine that it wasn't but the actual term ux never appears in the book (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean, that was a conscious decision not to make it about the jargon and not to make it about, like, you know, because as soon as you start getting into terms, you start getting into arguments about, like, definitions and things like that. And to me, so much of that stuff is just beside the point. Um, I will grant that uh, some of the criticism that I heard is exactly this sort of thing. Like, this is not called ergonomics, for example. Like, they don't use the word human factors enough in this book. And to me, that's not the point. It's trivial. It's... The fact that there's underlying ideas, no matter what word you want to put on top of them, the ideas will not change. Uh, but it always has this underlying current of human need, human desire, and human life that is really what powers that entire story.
3: You start the book by touching on Apple, who you state is the company that made user-friendly into an idea that we live with every day. And Cliff, you also state that despite being some of the most advanced computers ever made, their computers can still be operated by toddlers, which I've witnessed. Um, That somehow feels scary. Should, Should a toddler be so intuitively drawn to these supercomputers?
0: I will say it's a double-edged sword. And that sounds like a hedge, but the fact that it's so easy to use that a child can use it is an indicator that something has gone right with making technology relatable and understandable to people. But the fact that so much complexity can be hidden in such seemingly trivial and simple things means that there's a lot more to investigate and a lot more to question. And so... Is it on balance a good thing? I mean, I, I think the book probably ends in a, in a sort of a little bit of a, a precarious place where there's two possible directions you might go with that, both tied to you know those themes that I mentioned of empowering people and making things accessible to them in a way they were never accessible before, but also in the sense of kind of this world that maybe it's the case that all these things are happening to us and we're just passive consumers of it without the a chance to actually say, is this what we want? Um, and instead being sort of lured in by the ease and, um, I guess, almost addictive appeal of the technology around us. So I, I think the jury's out. And part of the rationale for the book, uh, and I think Robert would agree with this, is that, you know, we're hoping to maybe just a little bit tilt it towards the good side uh, by having that sort of sense of um, responsibility and investigation, frankly, in the, in the, in the hands of more people, uh, not just designers
3: you detail how tech scientist Harlan Crowder first proposed that a computer program be gauged not just on how well it solved a problem, but on how easy it made the lives of the people trying to solve it. And was that what inspired Don Norman to coin the term user experience in the 1990s? No,
0: they weren't, weren't, so far as I could tell, connected. Um, These were all just sort of people that were Kind of like, why did art flower in the 1920s in Paris, right? It's just there was something in the air. There was something in the sort of cultural moment that made the idea of, for example, a user friendly piece of software very important to this man, Harlan Crowder, in the 70s when he was articulating it and made it later important and relevant in all these different circumstances. I mean, it's one of these situations where You know, I don't think anybody, any individual actor knew what was going to come after, only that it was important to them, and it turned out it was important to other people as well.
3: Cliff, you include your own definition of user-friendly in the book, and I'm wondering if you can read it for us.
0: User-friendliness is simply the fit between the objects around us and the ways we behave. So while we might think that the user-friendly world is one of making user-friendly things, the bigger truth is that design doesn't rely on artifacts. As my collaborator Robert Fabricant likes to say, it relies on our patterns of behavior. All the nuances of designing new products can be reduced to one of two basic strategies, either finding what causes us pain and trying to eliminate it, or reinforcing what we already do with a new object that makes it so easy it becomes second nature. The truest material of making new things isn't aluminum or carbon fiber, it's behavior.
3: To that end, Robert, you tell new designers on your team, behavior is our medium not products or technologies. Um, so rather than the message is the medium, which I think we've been living with now for decades, um, you think it's behavior. Why?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that we have now, we're, we're so privileged to have so many different uh, materials that are at our fingertips and so many different ways to engage and interact with people, whether we're looking at how they make health choices or how they commute to work or how they take care of their kids. There's so many different elements of that experience that are now manipulable and, and available to th- rethink from a design perspective, to adapt, to change, to evolve. And so, you know, for me, I found that when I worked with designers, when they came in, they were in many ways nervous and scared and anxious about the quality of what they were producing and uh, very focused on looking not so much into the lives of the people they were kind of designing for but looking across at the screens next to them to at the lives of the designers that they admired that were sitting in their studio And so for me, it was partly to just really force that pivot in mindset, which is what you see on your screen, what you're making on your work table really doesn't matter at all. What matters is when you put it into someone's hands and you start to see what happens. And I think for the best designers, the ones I've enjoyed working with the most, what happens is in that moment, you see everything differently and your own understanding shifts and changes. And you start to realize that that is the dialogue and that is the the process you're involved in any emphasis on the preciousness of what you're kind of taking back to your desk or back to your sketchbook or back to your portfolio. It's important for your sense of identity, but it doesn't really matter a whit. And so for me, that that was a flip that switched when I started working on healthcare-related projects and just tapping into kind of what was at stake and recognizing that, you know, you had to bring a different humility to it. And look to see, well, what's the most fundamental thing and simplest thing in many ways that we can do?
3: Cliff, you had a hunch about the Three Mile Island incident that led to it becoming the first chapter of the book, which is really surprising. Um, Tell us about how that happened.
0: So uh, Three Mile Island, um, the worst nuclear reactor accident in the history of the United States. Uh, we came probably within 30 minutes of a complete meltdown of the reactor core at Three Mile Island, which is not even a two hour drive from where we're, st- where we're recording this right now. And so if that had happened, you can imagine there would have been radiation spewed from geysers rising from the ground to contaminate the entire eastern seaboard. We came within 30 minutes of radioactivity being spewed all across the most densely populated part of the United States. And together with Fukushima and Chernobyl, it's, you know, one of the calling card disasters of why, in our particular age, we are so afraid of nuclear power. Um, And, you know, so the stakes are quite high, you know, especially in the era of climate change. Like, this was one of those determining factors that set the future of how we would get our energy in the United States for many, many decades after. Um, So that's, in a nutshell, what happened. And at the time, you know, this is like in the late 70s, it was common to say, oh, the operators should have been trained better. They should have known this. They should have not been put in that situation. And the whole point that I discovered as I started digging about this is like, no, I challenge the most brilliant person in the world to have been in that operating room, to be there at that time operating that system to have done anything different. Why? Because we humans share our limitations. We humans have certain limitations that should inform the products that are designed around us should inform the way things are designed and if you can't understand how humans work then other humans will make the same mistakes and that idea of understanding human beings understanding who they are and their limitations understanding who they are when they're stressed when they don't have the attention span when they are going on limited information like that isn't a bug of what it means to be human. That is what it means to be human. That is what it means to design for humans, right? And once I sort of was able to see some of that up close, you realize, oh yeah, like user experience designers are always talking about, oh, you know, what problems are you trying to solve and all this kind of stuff. It's like, oh, that's what that means. That's what that really means. It means taking humans as they are, not as they should be. It means seeing them in the, in the sort of, in the bright light of day as opposed to in some idealized form under a glass case in a museum.
3: Do you think that it would be too simplified to state that the design problem at Three Mile Island was bad knob design?
0: If you really wanted to reduce it, you could probably say that. <laughs> if you really wanted to reduce it. But I would say there were some deeper things about how do you create an image in people's minds about how something works through the operation of it, right? you know, we take this for granted all the time, but you, there's a logic to the world that's been designed around you. You think like, oh yeah, this does this and I can count on this to do this thing. And when it goes wrong, I have a roughly a theory in mind about what broke or what went wrong. You know, you do this in, with your kitchen appliances, you know, this light isn't going on. So it must be something. And the fact that nobody in that room could have a realistic image in their minds, once the, all the alarms started blaring, once all hell started to break loose. The, the fact that nobody had a picture in their head of, here's what I think is going wrong, that tells you some, something went wrong. Our products have this responsibility to teach us not only just how to use them, but how they work and what they mean and like, how they fit in the world and how they influence the world. Like, these are all like enormous responsibilities that you may think that uh, the meltdown of a nuclear reactor may seem like an academic uh, example, But the fact is that people are doing this around you all day, and the stakes may be slightly lower, but when you multiply those stakes across billions of people doing the same thing, making these decisions every day, the stakes are, in in fact, higher.
3: You said that Hunch was based on the idea that when you took a hard enough look at monumental machine disasters, you can usually find a design problem. And... While you were doing your research, you randomly came across a Three Mile Island investigation study that was co-authored by a person named Don Norman. You went on to discover that it was the same Don Norman that coined the term user experience, did that blow your mind? It
0: blew my mind, you know the It blew my thing, mind
3: when I was reading. I'm like, "This is not possible." This the funniest not thing, possible. you know. So,
0: for your audience members who may not know, like Don Norman is he wrote the Design of Everyday Things, which was really the midpoint of his career. And from that, there was a career before that, and there was a career after that. The career after that included things like working uh, at Apple and heading up one of their advanced research groups, where one of the people that he praised and elevated happened to be somebody named John. Johnny Ive. Ive. <laughs> so. The fact that in this one human being, you could actually find this connective thread to all this obscure academic stuff and then flash forward to all this sort of stuff that we take for granted in the technology in our lives, that the fact that this could reside in one person, was like, who gets that lucky? <laughs> when you're trying to tell a story, who gets that lucky? But, you know, the fact is, like, the discipline of design as it's practiced today it was very much about bringing stuff that all these, like, wonky guys that were super into, like, knobs and dials and how they work... And making that work relevant to more and more people because they realized it needed to be applied in all these different places. That is the story. That's why we're sitting in the studio in this lovely uh, campus of SVA and why you guys have so many eager students interested in about design and eager to make their their impact on the world through design. That, That is the story.
3: In your subsequent interviews with Don Norman, he stated that he realized that there wasn't any understanding of technology combined with psychology. And while people were building technology for people, the technologists didn't understand people. And you've called the Three Mile Island the biggest design failure in American history, but also the most instructive. Why is that? Well,
0: and I think that, you know, what Don said in that particular context is right on, which is that you had these different people that didn't realize who they were creating for, right? As a technologist, it's quite easy to say, I can do this. Now, it's easy not to ask the question, why should I do this? For whom should I do this? And why does this matter? And I think that, you know, you, you answer, like, why is that important? Well, if we lose sight of that, you get ridiculousness repeated that, ends up costing people lives and livelihood, right? You know, the Boeing example. You know, there's a great example of the end user being so disconnected from the technologists that could say, like, I could, I can do this. Shouldn't I do this? Isn't this cool? This is perpetually the place that we're in as, 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 as people.
3: Can you tell us about pilot error in World War II and how a massive paradigm shift took place, which you've likened to, quote, The Copernican shift that actually put human beings and humanism at the center of the world.
0: Yeah, so imagine in World War II, there's all these amazing airplanes. This era saw an explosion of technology that we haven't seen since, um, probably on par with the Silicon Revolution in the 90s, right? Or the one that we're undergoing right now. And you had all these planes that the engineers were saying, oh, you know, this should be. X, Y, Z accurate. This could be improve our range in this following ways. And none of those numbers ended up making it to reality. None of this stuff performed as well as anybody claimed it it would. And the reason was that pilots were crashing these planes all the time. They were all these kinds of like horrible accidents that were happening because these machines were so confusing to use. And so at the time, you know, keep in mind, this is an era of IQ tests, the idea that you could find the exact right person to do the exact right job. And this was like the cutting edge of psychological science at the time, which is like, I've got the perfect person that should be flying this plane. And what people realized was like, no, that's not working. Finding the quote-unquote perfect person isn't working because nobody's perfect. And the Copernican revolution that you, you, you mentioned the, that you quote from is this idea that, hey— We shouldn't presume that human beings are perfectible. We should presume that human beings are limited. They are a sum of limitations. And that shift in mindset from, like, thinking about the thing to thinking about the person gets us to this point now where if you take a design class, people are always talking about the user, the user, the user, the user, right? that gets you to this point where now we're not looking out at the things we can make. We're looking at who we're making them for. It's a, it's a, it's a shift in perspective that I think is unappreciated for how beautiful in many ways it is.
3: You poignantly discuss the notion of feedback in the book and state there may be no greater design challenge for the 21st century than creating better, tighter feedback loops in places where they don't exist, be they in the environment, healthcare, or government. And you detail how feedback is what allows information to become action, not just at the level of data, of neurons, and nerves, and you go on to state that while the natural world is filled with feedback, in the man-made world, that feedback has to be designed. Can you talk about how a feedback loop is designed?
0: So a, f- a feedback loop is pretty simple to define, right? It's, it's uh, At the dumbest level, it's the notion of, like, when you were, let's say, going to push the button that engages your toaster, what does the toaster do to tell you that the toaster turned on? What does the do- toaster do to say, I'm done toasting? So that idea of designing feedback is everywhere. And so much of what we do as designer is create that feedback that tells the user, like, hey, this was done and you can be sure that this is going to happen. So you trust it. Yeah. So you trust it. And if you take a look back, so many of the products around us are defined by feedback, right? Facebook's entire business model was built on creating a new type of feedback that did not exist, which is like social feedback around what is – Millions of people think about something. It just we're didn't exist. We're
3: going to talk about that at length.
0: <laughs> it didn't exist before, right? And so the point that I'm making is that so much of when we think of, like, futuristic stuff, we're actually talking about feedback that didn't exist before. Like, you know, this may seem a little far afield, but, like, uh, artificial intelligence. Really, at the end of the day, all it is is about letting algorithms take feedback. It's literally... The ability for an algorithm to say, that worked, that didn't work, I'm going to change myself accordingly, use that feedback, and tweak myself in order to make this work a little bit better. That's all. And the point that I'm making with feedback is that so many of the things that we um, see as broken in the world are basically instances where the feedback isn't there. Like, for example, Climate you vote <laughs> on an election. Oh, okay. Nothing changes. No feedback. What did you do? What happened? You follow the advice of your doctor. You eat one hamburger, nothing seems to change. No feedback. You didn't get the sense that, like, this really mattered. Climate change, great example. We drive to work, go about our day, do all these things, and you think, oh, yeah, I know something's going wrong. But you got no feedback about what what that did to the earth. You know, I give this example. Like, sometimes when feedback exists, like, we act on it, right? So imagine just a thought exercise. Imagine if all the carbon in the world was slowly turning the sky from blue to green. What would the world be like if that simple piece of feedback saying you did this and this changed and now you have to react to it? If that simple piece of feedback existed, the dialogue around climate change would be totally different. But the fact is it's invisible, i.e. there's no feedback. But it
3: doesn't have to be.
0: Right. So these are consciously not designed. Right. And that's my point, which is that we need to design feedback that makes us understand what the stakes are in so many different cases where the costs are invisible, the effects are un- unaccounted for, and the impacts are just completely unclear, right?
3: That's also why a lot of people are noncompliant with medication, because right. there isn't any immediate feedback. There's
0: no immediate sense that like, hey, I did this thing. It, it seemed to go okay, so I'm just going to continue to forget about it sometimes. Like, yeah, there is no, there's no consequences, right? People say this all the time about the criminal justice reform system. People say that uh, if you look at the biggest factor in crime deterrence is not severity of the sentence, but it's how quickly the sentence was dealt out. (laughs) In other words, how quickly do your courts work to produce feedback into the system that tells people, like, there will be consequences for this if you do this thing?
3: Malcolm Gladwell actually writes about that at length in his most recent book. Gotcha.
2: Of course he did. (laughs) He's always getting there first. So, you know, we take it for granted in our society, sticking with criminal justice for a minute, that um, we have an open court system. Anyone can sit in on a trial, unless it's a very high-profile trial, and we're assuming that's going to provide feedback. As a society, we're going to see what's happening there, and if we're not happy with what's happening there, there will be some way to inform policymakers to shift the norms to make sure that trials and the way the justice system operates in the most fundamental and individual way is aligned with our cultural values and our norms. And so the organization I worked with when I got out of college organizes people to do just that because no one does it. The feedback is missing. Mm. The court system has, like, like if you look at the, the way our criminal justice system is set up, there's so much more focus on improving the way cops function in neighborhoods and even the way that things like jails are run. But the courts are, are a vacuum. They're a black box. And so what I did was go in and I organized people to observe in courts, and to provide feedback. Feedback to their local politicians, feedback to their local community. You'd be surprised to know, as someone who now does most of my work in India and Africa and places like that, in New York State today, village and town courts are not presided over by someone with a legal degree. You do not need to be a lawyer to be a village or town court justice in New York State, rural New York State today.
3: How do you get the job?
2: You are nominated and elected by your oh, local community. Okay. And you can be the local mechanic. You can be have any, any role. So anyway, and so for me, I reflect on it a lot because then now I see so many aspects where I'm coming in to fill that gap, not just in terms of figuring out how you're going to mobilize people to provide that feedback, but how you're going to translate that feedback into the most impactful way to rethink the way something works. But I was in India in uh, mid-November, and we had just done the largest study and look at the user experience around their digital ID system. This is used by 1.6 billion people. It is as large as any social network. And yet people have very little understanding, coming back to the point Cliff was making, about how it works. They have very little feedback loops to provide kind of information about whether it's working well. And policymakers are very removed from that day-to-day experience, and that's exactly kind of what we were hired to do is fill that gap.
3: But it feels very intentional that that feedback loop is not intact. Why do you mean by intentional? To keep people powerless.
2: Well, you know, this system was set up in part to fill a vacuum that created a lot of inefficiencies in that particular situation with the Indian government in terms of both corruption and lack of accountability for a lot of money that is being spent that's trying to reach the right people. So I would argue that intentionality is a hard thing to pin down in that case. Okay. Uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have made that, that necessarily made that assertion. But what we found, and this relates to another theme of the book, is that if you really want to understand what's going on with it and the trade-offs, one of the best things to do is look at extreme users. And we, you know, Cliff does a beautiful job talking about the role of disabilities and people with different ways of interacting with the world and how that can fundamentally shift the way we think about how things should work for everybody. And so we spent a lot of time looking at marginalized groups to try and figure out where is a system like this breaking down for them. So I I don't believe that there's anyone in that case who's sitting back and being unintentional about it and preferring a system with little feedback. I think you have people who don't know what they're going to do with the feedback when they get it. And that's scary, too. But I do think um, it's it's a more complex set of dynamics than that. But I do think, to Debbie's point, like, there's plenty of
0: examples of people purposely short-circuiting feedback loops so that they can get away with what they would like to get away with. I mean, our courts, our democracy is riddled with examples like this. Gerrymandering. Yeah. Yeah the reason so we're talking about this on a design podcast is just like look you know you think that like feedback is like this simple thing that's basically like hey this button didn't do what i wanted it to do it didn't respond in the way it's usually responding for and my point in this all this stuff is that like actually there's a deeper thing about feedback that is the reason why things are quote-unquote user-friendly why if they do what we expect and they get the job done but that lesson about feedback is one that you can apply to so many different swaths of our lives and so many different things, like they just need feedback that doesn't exist.
3: There's also something I think really interesting, and interesting is not the right word, but it'll be the one I use at this moment, about feedback that stops working. And you write about a woman named Christine Frederick, who became one of the loudest advocates for something called consumption engineering. And you quote the historian Jeffrey L., Michael, um, in his sweeping survey designed in the USA, and you state this new expert would anticipate changes in buying habits and create artificial obsolescence by convincing people that prosperity lies in spending, not saving. And you go on to state that people weren't interested in spending more on the same things they already had Manufacturers had to convince people that what they were offering was something new and better. And this was the milieu that Henry Dreyfus, who you write substantially about, uh, stepped into, a new era infused with the idea that sparking the urge to buy might well save the country from ruin, that the only way to make people buy was to make things better than they'd ever been. Now, I spend a lot of time thinking about planned or forced obsolescence and I, or artificial obsolescence. Um, the fashion industry is certainly the, the number one purveyor of, of artificial obsolescence in the way that they offer new fashion trends every season. Um, but there's certainly quite a lot of artificial or planned or forced obsolescence in technology. And I'm concerned that artificial obsolescence is not as educated about as it should be. And you, you talk about that quite a bit in the book. What can we do about educating people on why and how forced or artificial or planned obsolescence is happening?
0: Educating people about like, oh, yeah, this stuff isn't the way of least resistance. Like, this isn't better because it's more convenient. I think that dialogue is changing. I think people are recognizing like, oh, yeah, just because something is easy doesn't mean that it's Right. And a great example is the iPhone. Yes. A great example, right? Every year it's thinner, it's faster, it's more beautiful, blah, 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 blah. Why does it have to be thinner? Does that really even matter? When's the last time somebody said like, oh, my iPhone doesn't fit in my pocket? We've reached this point in which we're still consuming this narrative that every year things are going to get better and that that somehow is um, the way to happiness.
3: Well, we metabolize our purchases. You know, Dan Pink talks about that quite a lot. You know, if our idea of happiness is a flatter, thinner screen, then we're, we're playing a fool's game.
0: Yeah, and so, you know, what's so strange, you know, and the reason why I think that, that moment rang so true for me is that there, there are pluses and ben- minuses, right? Henry Dreyfus, all those people that were trying to engineer our way out of the Great Depression by getting people to spend money instead of saving the money, they wanted to make lives, lives better. You know, they were improving people's lives by, let's say, giving a, a housewife 30 minutes back that she didn't have to do, like washing the dishes, you know, thanks to a dishwasher or, you know, you know, a, a washing machine that did the laundry. They were, in some sense, improving people's lives. But, you know, you go far enough and you're not improving anybody's lives. You're just making something different that scratches that, that gives us that itch to buy something.
3: Incremental income from the corporation's perspective.
0: <laughs> and, you know, what's wild to me is that, like, Companies have not made a principled stance against some of this stuff because their interests ultimately still lie in selling us more stuff. And
3: then they'll say that their obligation is to the shareholder and they're making money for the shareholder. I mean, what's
0: crazy is that, like, look, Apple could absolutely make a slightly thicker iPhone that allowed it, the screen, not to crack all the time. That's an engineering. That's a physical industrial engineering problem. There's no reason why we'd have to put a case to protect this thing that cost $1,000 from breaking at the slightest slip of your hand. But they don't do it because every year the marketing message has to be it's thinner. That's just or like,
3: that if it's broken, you might as well get a new one.
2: Right. Well, the thing, the thing that is astonishing to me about Apple specifically is not the hardware story. It's the software story.
3: In So what I line? think
2: I wrote an article for Fast Company. It might have been for Cliff eight or ten years ago kind of proclaiming that, why isn't this the last iPhone I'll ever have to buy? And it wasn't so much that they're getting thinner and thinner and thinner. It was that, you know, this thing has such a powerful software engine, it should continue to evolve without need- never, ever needing to shed its hardware. That was the implicit idea behind, you know, the, some of the early work I had done around mobile computing. The whole idea is this thing can adapt and change to your life. And the software and the information on it and the way you interact with it should be able to grow and evolve without it having to shed its physical skin. For all the ways in which Apple has introduced design and upgraded our notion and introduced the world to why design matters so much, they've made that one decision that set us in such a bad, on such a bad trajectory. And the other way I see it play out now, which drives me nuts, and you probably too, Debbie, I assume, is you see all these designers working on a timeless version of something. I'm going to build you the best rolling bag suitcase ever, and it's going to be timeless. So, yes, you'll buy another one, but it's supposed to be the last one you'll ever buy, and that is such a bankrupt idea. There is no timeless version of anything. We, our lives change, our behavior change. You should be as comfortable as possible with what you have because the next thing you buy thinking it's the perfect Oxford shirt or the perfect, you know, uh, recycled sneaker... In two or three years, your life is going to change and you're going to have different notions of what's timeless.
3: But then we have to really fundamentally change the way people think about what they buy and why they buy things and what it provides them. That has nothing to do with the corporations who I think just exploit that psychological flaw that we have.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a really interesting thing. It's like I don't know what the culture is going to be like in 100 years. Maybe this we'll look back at this and this will be a temporary moment because if you look at the grand scheme of history, the long arc, we're in a specific set of assumptions that they don't have to be that way. Right. We could live in a different world and the world, in fact, will change, right? We may in 100 years think like why did people – why were people so interested in buying the same thing over and over again every year? But getting us there is going to be about knowing that that is what is happening as opposed to just – passively assuming this is the way the world works and this is the way it always has to work. Well,
3: I think it's a matter of the the psychology of humans. I'd like to read what I considered was the most startling and frightening part of the book for you in terms of (laughs) this specific conversation. You state, when things turn out just as we expect, the reward centers in our brains stay dormant. After all, the circuitry didn't evolve to reward us for finding out what we already know. On the other hand, when things don't turn out like we expect, our brains catch fire, alert to the chance of gleaning a new pattern. Our reward centers buzz. It's the same dopamine circuitry triggered by heroin and cocaine. So-called variable rewards pop up most obviously in casinos and in the design of slot machines, on which Americans spend more money than movies, Baseball and theme parks combined. And this very same design of the slot machine is involved in the design of social apps like Facebook, like Twitter, and Instagram. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. <laughs> I, mean, I love that little mm, <laughs> very sinister, <laughs> very foreboding. So I should
0: say, I, I. This is a, an observation that's been been made by many, and it's an observation that you, you know, it's tempting to to say that one company or one, you know, this company or that company. It's all of them.
3: No, it's all of them. I mean, and the same reward only, centers are what we're talking it's about. It's not only in just all of them. Of it's feedback it's, and it's technology. All like and Apple.
0: If you think about like literally, why do you check the news all the time? Because you don't know what's going to happen. Like. Literally, our world is built on so many of these senses like, I don't know what's going to happen, so let me just see. It's that sense of like, I don't know what I'm going to get, so I'm going to go pull that slot lever. And the whole point of this is that like, look, designers sort of like fumbled their way into realizing like that's how you get people to really engage with digital products is that you give these variable rewards. You give notifications that change all the time, like a notification is different. You don't know what you're going to get, so therefore you open it to see. Right. For example, you don't know what the the update is going to be from this social network. So you go and check and you 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 check. What are we hoping for? So the funny thing is, is our circuitry is just like. It, you know, the the reward, rewards are so few. They don't even have to be that high. They can be meaningless. Just but an the, email? Yeah. You just
3: get a brand new email.
0: Or just like, you know, oh, that was funny, right? And so that one, like, little, like, piece of engagement, it, it's the same deal with um, gambling addicts. You know, what are they after? They Do they realize they're losing money long term? Uh, they don't care because they remember winning that one time. And that one time is enough to keep them pulling that lever because of the way our, our brain is wired. Um, because of the way those dopamine receptors work, right? You know, I write about the the creator of the Facebook button that essentially, like, weaned himself off of all this stuff. He turns notifications off and does all this kind of stuff. So people are doing this with that recognition that, oh, yeah, like, this is addicting in a way that I can't control, and the benefits just, they're not there for me, right?
3: You state that Facebook's creation of the like button is the single most ubiquitous interface of the 21st century. Why do you believe that?
0: Hard to argue with, right? I mean, who, are, who in the world and what country and what province or village or state or city has not pushed a like button? Um, you can't say the same of almost anything that exists, any man-made object that exists out there. And again, you know, that one thing was just about creating feedback loops that didn't exist. How many people
3: like my posts?
0: You know, like who's engaging? Like that feedback loop didn't exist before, and it turns out we go wild for it because of the way we're wired.
3: So it's sort of a combination of the feedback loop as well as the dopamine push that we are. Yeah, but I, for. I, I think
2: the thing that I thought was very striking about that chapter is that they become ubiquitous so fast that people feel like the way the form they took is inevitable and the choices that were made about them are inevitable. And yet it's a joke amongst us designers, as you guys know. You know, someone at 11 o'clock at night had to render out something and and choices had to be made and somebody took an idea and made it concrete and it took off and millions of other ideas didn't, but that, that one did. And to me, I think it's partly for people to understand because I think coming back to the Donald Norman comment, the Donald Norman of Three Mile Island and the design of everyday things was a Donald Norman who thought if you understood psychology, there is a right answer to design. And you can design the right mapping and the right feedback to work the right way. And he kind of really pushed hard in a good way to turn that into a a quasi-science. And I think My point is that I think a lot of the people who now are catching up to this world that they've suddenly been dropped into assume there was a lot of science behind these choices. And yet these choices were made by individuals and people iterated and tested their way to something that really worked beyond what they thought. But it's not because they had uh, some way of predicting and calculating what the net effect or the impact of it could be. It was, it, was, it was an artifact of history. I happened to, at one point, when I was at Frog, bring in an outside designer who designed the little um, teardrop, points of interest icon in Google Maps. Think about the number of people who are looking at that every day. It seems like an obvious design, maybe a design that should have always been that way, but somebody still created it. And just knowing that makes you look at it differently. I, I, another analogy I'd use is when a Mapgate ha- happened and Apple introduced for the first time its own mapping app when people had become quite accustomed to the idea that Google Maps came with their phone. And it wasn't so much that Apple's was worse or better. It's that people thought there was only one way a digital map could work. And that was reassuring because they've learned that feedback. And once you introduce a second way, you start to realize there's a third way and a fourth way and a fifth way. And a lot of people are making a lot of choices. And you, sooner or later, are gonna end up participating in those choices. And that's not necessarily a bad thing on its own. And we've talked about in, in in the case of Facebook and the like button, the sort of hamster wheel of variable rewards, but there are other ways in which that's part of the growing education of us as consumers and and and, and the, the participants in these systems that I think we're really trying to get at. And I feel like that is in many ways more of the unique contribution of the book um, is to pull back the curtain on that as opposed to, you know, having a particular kind of critique of technology today.
3: You pose a, a bit of a terrifying question towards the end of User-Friendly, which I think in many ways builds upon what you're saying now. You say what if your neocortex and your limbic system disagree? We have this experience of a single self, but at the hardware level, the reality is that we're a committee. Some parts are old, some parts are new, and it's not unusual that they'll disagree. And I think I think that's a brilliant way of looking at the state of the world. I think that our Neocortex and our limbic systems are at war right now.
2: And and, and one thing I would say um, is that the assumption that the way we as designers can approach these problems in the most both ethical and meaningful way is to try and understand people and their needs and to build on that. And yet, as you have said, people's needs are a committee. And you find yourself, as you do user research, which we've all been deep in, with a – kaleidoscope. Um, And in the work I do, particularly in emerging markets, that kaleidoscope is everywhere. I mean, you know, so few needs are being met. And so there are value judgments and choices that you're making to say, I think that there's a higher level need or a more long-term need that I should be driving with this design versus the more immediate need of, let's say, variable rewards or something. Why are you in the position to make that choice in the first place as a designer 10, 20 years ago, no one thought designers would be making decisions like that about products and how they behave. So why are you in that position? And how are you going to make that? What, what are you going to make that decision based on? And I think that's a really very fundamental question the book raises. And to some degree, I think uh, for designers, it's a, it's a quandary we're in now. Um, where you can't really relinquish the role that we are now playing in shaping a lot of these systems and platforms and refactoring the way we vote. Um, at the same time, you're in this place where you're trying to participate to some degree in that committee and advise it and trying to um, navigate that as a, as, a, as a community and as a community of practice is, I think, uh, a really huge question and a huge quandary for us now moving forward.
3: Especially if we're not able to foresee how certain rather insidious little decisions we make can be manipulated. Like a like button. And how
2: hard they are to undo. Yeah. Software came at us with the idea that this was all flexible and could be undone. And I think one of the great learning curves for all of us working in this for a long time is that it's one of the hardest things to undo in the world, actually. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that we're being faced to answer as designers is, you know,
0: we are always trying to help the people that we're designing for. Um, But the question is, is like, help them in one sense? Are we trying to save them one second or are we trying to improve their lives? And, you know, if you rolled the tape all the way back to somebody like Henry Dreyfus, who thought, like, if I can just save you 15 seconds with a product that's just slightly easier to use, that seemed like the win on the most monumental scale for him. In so many generations, it was, right? Our lives are so much easier. But then now you have to ask the question, like, is that slight little bit of ease, like, it's satisfying in the short term, but in the long term, like, what does it actually yield at scale when everybody else is doing it too? Um, When you multiply that interaction over billions of people and that to me is a – it's not unhopeful that we are now realizing that, right? It's a greater level of awareness and a greater level of thought that's being put into the products around us um, and that's for the good. Now the question is, is like did we realize this stuff in time? And I don't know. I don't have an answer for that.
3: I have two last questions for you. You posed this question about the future. Imagine if instead of apps, our smartphones were built around the relationships we care about, if, instead of opening an app to connect with who we love, we simply remained connected with those we loved, and the tools to bring us closer appeared only when we needed them in the flow of our relationships with one another who knows how much easier how much more satisfying our digital lives might be if the governing metaphor for smartphones were one of human connection rather than programs it's very optimistic do you think we'll ever reach that point
0: i do and i do in the following sense so the book i should say i should make that i have to clarify this otherwise i'll i'll be in oh, super hot water i wrote this book before i ever went to google Um, I work there now, um, the book is completely separate from that work, it happened before I came, but I do think that people are working on this problem. I do think that there are many people out there thinking, and it's not just, uh, at the place where I work, it's other places, people are thinking, what is that metaphor that will get us to a model of computing that is much more personal and much more helpful than it is now? Because a lot of this, like, app ecosystem and all this kind of stuff, it's not working for us. And I think that there's people out there proposing solutions everywhere, and I'm optimistic.
2: Yeah, I would just add, you know, in the work that I do today, I'm privileged to drop in and and engage with people in very diverse circumstances. And what I see constantly is what they're looking for as they are for the first time starting to uh, become part of a more connected world is they're looking for their local experience to be captured and to be elevated. And the ways that communities share resources, the way they share and trade goods, the way they connect with each other, talk to each other, support each other, that is the lifeblood of a lot of how we're going to address problems around healthcare and other things. And I feel like people are looking to see that expressed more and more. And I think that, again— I think some of us have a little bit of a broader perspective. There was a moment where we were asking a lot of these same questions around AOL, you know. Um, so <laughs> the reality is that I think that Yikes. one of the I, – if I had to make a very positive uh, assertion, I think that there, out of the ashes of something like Facebook could come a greater and greater appreciation for how to make local experiences and the way we can augment and, and – make them resonate and have longer lives, longer opportunities to live and be captured and shared. I think that that is one of the things that I think could emerge from the f- the frenetic pace of social media today. So that's that to me is hopeful, and I think there's a lot of value. That's not just a pipe dream. There's a lot of value to be captured um, because otherwise there are huge communities for whom you know things like Facebook and Google are never going to be relevant. that you can run a Google I, I was sitting with a youngish woman with children in, in Indonesia. And she went on Google in Indonesia to look for a job. And you know what? She would probably have to thumb through about 700 pages to find anything at her local community. And that was the last time she used Google. She was like, what's the point of this? This doesn't make any sense. It's not useful. And so I do think that there is a ability there and an opportunity there that I'm, I'm quite hopeful about.
0: I think what's super interesting, Debbie, like, y- you know, you asked the question, do you have optimism about this? And one thing that I would point out, this kind of blew my mind when somebody told me this, they made the point that like, look, you know, social networking as, as we live with it today, it was created by a bunch of kids that were living in the suburbs, disconnected from a lot of people because of the sort of the slow motion decline of the commons that we've experienced in America in the last 30 years, right? They have two parents that work. And so what did they create? Of course, they created a way to connect with people online, which was this new technology that existed in the world. And so the question you have to ask today is that given everything that's around, what are those kids experiencing all this stuff? What are they going to be making now that we have different assumptions about what the world should be like? And you can't not have optimism about that. And if you're going to have optimism about anything, it should be that which is that they will solve the problems, there will be an overcorrection, there'll be some things that need to be fixed, but the problem, the target's going to move to some other place.
3: On the whole, you've said that your book tries to paint forward a picture of what's going to change and the enduring principles of design that might have to offer about what the world is going to be like in the coming years. Do you have any sense of what that might be? The book is really a a look back in a lot of ways in the history of user-friendliness and user experience. Do you have a sense of what might be happening that we can look forward to?
0: I think a lot of what I'm hopeful and looking forward to is just figuring out some way that technology can just more disappear and become a little bit more about what we want. I mean, the thing that I'm looking forward to is like, You know, we talked about this idea that, you know, what pleases you in the short term in the immediate moment of pushing a button is not the same as what deeply satisfies you in the long term, what makes you into who you are. And so the thing that I am hopeful for is that so much of the things around us will allow us to express more of who we are and more of what we really value and put that into uh, the technology all around us, the user experiences all around us to have The world around us recognize who we want to be, not just what gets us to interact with.
3: Let's hope so. Cliff Kuang and Robert Fabricant, thank you so much for writing such an illuminating book. And thank you both for joining me today on Design Matters.
0: Thanks for having us.
3: The New York Times called user-friendly, how the hidden rules of design are changing the way we live, work, and play a tour de force. It's also an Amazon Top 100 book and was picked as Book of the Year by Fortune magazine. As we approach the 15th anniversary of design matters i'd like to thank you for listening all these years and remember we can talk about making a difference we can make a difference or we can do both i am debbie melman and i look forward to talking with you again soon
1: a special thanks to our sponsor ac hotels by marriott member of marriott bonvoy if you love this podcast please consider contributing to our brand new patreon community Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Master's in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.